This episode of the Curious Life podcast is brought to you by the sneaky treat company Melbourne, decadent sweet treats delivered to your door. Let your friends, family or clients know that you're thinking of them with a box of goodies and a personalised note to send along with your gift. TheSneakyTreatCo.com, you know you want to. Labrook has been a shining star of radio and television for the last two and a bit decades. She's known for her quick wit and mirthful observations and isn't afraid to share a strong opinion either. Two years ago, Kate was at the top of her game with a top-rating radio show with a legion of avid listeners and regular, much-loved television appearances. Now, at the height of this acclaim, Kate and her husband Peter made the bold move to pack up their family of six and move off to Italy for a year. What came next was a combination of highs and lows, time for reflection and a healthy dose of La Dolce Vita. One year in Italy rolled into two when Kate found herself at the epicentre of the global pandemic during what should have been her sweet escape. So what sent her packing? And how did she manage with all those kids in an apartment during months of intense lockdown on the other side of the world? Kate chats with Yana about the magic of Italy and share more than a few aha moments when the topic turns to the depths of grief that having a child with a cancer diagnosis brings and the stark realities of life as a busy mum of four. Kate has plenty of advice for Yana as she gives us insight into her own little wolf pack and just how she is raising her three boys to be good men. They chat about the changing landscape of friendships, medieval plague doctors and all the beauty that lies within Kate's brilliant new book, Ciao Bella, Kate Langbrook, what a star. And you'll get to know her a little better next on the Curious Life podcast. This is a massive treat for me. I'm so thrilled to be talking with you today, Kate. Thank you so much for joining me on The Curious Life. Well, it's a pleasure. I want to ask you about parenting because in a couple of months, in a few months' time, I'm going to be the mother of three boys. Wow. So there's a scoop yes. for you listeners. I haven't announced one yet. Three boys is a lot and you have three beautiful boys. Yes. Yeah. So tell me is it going to be as insane and maddening as I'm imagining well you know when I was waiting to come up the stairs you probably heard them wrestling downstairs and they've gotten wilder as they've gotten older and even so they're not really massively wild Lewis who's the eldest is their overlord that's really (laughs) what for most of the trouble seems to take waiting to pounce on them to you know whatever sit on them chase them take whatever they've got smother Mm -hmm. them with pillows blah 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 but I don't mind that about boys at all actually I think it's much easier and simpler in my experience to have three boys than to have one daughter really yeah yeah wow I think woman is born girl is born a woman we are very complex Mm -hmm. and in my experience Boys are much more straightforward in their communication and their needs, and that makes it easier for me to parent them. I would happily have a household of boys. Really? Yeah, love it. I love it. I don't mind that, you know, the <laughs> a couple of times when people have come over, they've gone, oh, my God, 
how can you stand it? And I'm like, what? And they're like the bouncing of balls. I'm like, I don't even hear it. It's just <laughs> a constant in our house. Our poor neighbours in Italy who lived underneath us, who who must have just had them bouncing of balls on marble floors. Nuts. Okay, well, I'm reassured to know that the chaos and the noise and the activity and the energy that I'm experiencing is par for the course, really. Well, and also because, I, I mean, you don't really have to get involved in it because mm. you're the mother. <laughs> and maybe that's why as well I feel quite... I, I quite enjoy it because it doesn't have any ramifications for me. They're not expecting me to go out and play basketball with them unless they want a really good laugh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do, but I'm not, you know. Yeah. yeah. So all their activities, I'm not wrestling with them. I'm not, you know. Um, <laughs> so I can enjoy their, you know, they're like cubs. That, that's exactly right. When we were here in isolation, I was sitting in the garden reading your book, trying to just have a moment in the sun. And they are like lion cubs, yes. tangling all over me, all over Yes, me. It's just constant. Yeah. It's an, a biological imperative that they have. Mm. They need to establish all these things to become good men. They have to work out. They work out how you play fight with someone without hurting them. They work out what you have to do when you have hurt someone. It's all boundaries and muscle development and um, like magnificent stuff I'm glad that I never had to do. It's bad enough having to live it through them, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you talk about the marble floors in your beautiful palatial apartment that you eventually got into. And I have to ask you about the medieval plague doctor oh yeah still gives me goosebumps yes. anyone listening you have to go and google just google kate langbrook ghost italy do you know what how funny it was and i just said to my editor the other day because the story about the ghost in the mirror came up in in a publicity interview i was doing and then i realized the photo's not in the book i sent my editor a message saying do you realize that photo's not in the book She said, yes, she did realise and it was an oversight. I had posted it on Instagram. In fact, I might post it as a throwback, but it was quite an incredible thing to happen, which was we were looking at our apartment when we were waiting to move into it and some friends of mine from Australia, where Husey was in Italy visiting, my girlfriend Sash, her Italian squeeze, Giovanni, and some other friends of ours, Dave and Tash, And we all went to have a look at the apartment, which had just become this endless thing of when will this renovation ever be finished? But still, it was just so spectacular to see, even full of dust and, you know, deeply unfinished. And so we were all in the apartment and Ferdy, our landlord, had come and shown us up and he was always, he must have thought we were a bit crazy because there were always lots of people and whatever, but he was just such a gentleman and so beautiful. Anyway. I was standing in front of these, there were these three giant mirrors we had, like huge, they could never be moved, bolted to the wall from the 1700s, Ferdy told us. I was saying to my girlfriend Tash, I always say these mirrors are so old that if you turn around really quickly in the mirror, you'll you'll be able to see the past, right? Mm-hmm. She's Irish, so she loved that. You know, the Irish love that <laughs> mad shit. Anyway, so she and I were both trying to see the past really quickly, looking <laughs> back in the mirror. And then I think my husband, I don't know, someone took a photo of her on the, just on the phone. And then when we were looking at the photo, there was an image behind us in the mirror. And it was, at first you would have thought it was a joke, but we were all in the room together. 
And Husey, who's deeply skipped, he's like, what, how's it, how did that happen? How's this possible? We were literally like, we were all there. No one could have done it. It was taken on my phone. And then moments later, we looked at my phone. And anyway, there's the image of a a man clad in white with a sort of floppy hooded um, cloak on maybe and a big cross around his neck. And we were like, oh, my God. And then we, Giovanni, of course, who's Italian, looked at it and he laughed and he goes, a phantasma, it's a ghost. And we're like, what, what? And then we showed it to other Italian friends. They went, oh, yes, it's a ghost. It's a plague ghost. Now, that was our first year in Italy. That was 2019. There was no talk of plague then, no talk of certainly plague doctors or anything like that. Yeah. And we thought about that all the time. And yet we never had an incident in that house. People were always like, are you scared? I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not scared at all. Was never scared for a moment in that house. In fact, to feel much more secure in an apartment in in a city, Bologna, than I do in a house in the suburbs of Australia, where for some reason, no one wants to do anything about the ice epidemic. Do you know Mm. what I mean? Like, just feel... Like children could walk home from art classes in the dark in the middle of the city. Well, I wouldn't let them do that here. Yeah. So it felt really safe. Never had another incident, but well, have also never forgotten that. No. And then only months later, the whole world mm. is mm-hmm. in a plague. Yes. I mean, it's incredible. Like that was mm. a warning, a foreboding, a sign. Well, was it, you know, because Bologna was was a city that had the plague and in fact when you go into the central central Bologna there were there, there's the whispering walls that the kids and I everyone we always used to stop and talk there which is this arched giant arch sort of pathway and if you stand on in one corner of it and you whisper into the wall you can be heard on the other side of it and it was for the plague it was for when people would come into town and they needed things or they had to speak to someone or talk to a priest but they couldn't get near someone because wow. of the plague so the plague is not a foreign concept in italy wow. that said it's hard to see it wasn't a portent isn't it Seriously. Mm, mm. But, I mean, what would you have done? You wouldn't have done anything differently. No, but what, as he, <laughs> oh, we saw, there's a plague coming, everybody. There's a plague. Imagine if I was one of those people, you know, like there's always someone that they're, they're always like, oh, you know, this Austrian economist, he picked the global yes. financial crisis in 2007. Yes. Easily these people who could have predicted it, the people who knew what were going on in Wuhan at the time, the those government agencies that were paying for gain-of-function research. There's a lot of people who could have predicted it, but they didn't. Correct. Likely that I was going to be one of those. <laughs> <laughs> you do wonder what the chain of, of truth emerging is, and it yeah. always does emerge. This is a very interesting period in our lives. Isn't it? And to think that you lived through this century's plague in such an amazing place with such a history. And also just the simple odds that of all the places in Italy we could have based ourselves. We based mm-hmm. ourselves in the region that was the first hit after China. Yeah. All of it was everything's been extraordinary for everyone really, hasn't it? But it does sometimes you just marvel at how how the pieces fall into place. 
Yeah, even as the whole Jenga pile is collapsing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Pick up the pieces later. Kate Langbrook's new book, Ciao Bella, is a real page turner where Italy just leaps off the page. Hear about it in just a moment. All the way back to the panel days, I've been a huge fan. So, of course, when you were in Italy, I was listening eagerly for all the little tidbits that were coming through when you'd call in and imagining you getting up at the crack of dawn in a little studio somewhere in... Mm -hmm down the cobblestones. So many cobblestones. I can imagine. (laughs) You brought it to life magnificently in your book and it could not have come at a better time for me because just as Victoria was coming out of lockdown, we went into two weeks of ISO because there was a positive case at my kids' kinder. The escape into your world in Italy Uh. was sublime. Thank you. It was. It was when I, when I was writing it as well, and I obviously started writing when we were still in Italy, and I finished writing when we were back in Australia, I would say to my husband, oh, how lucky I am. I get to go to Italy today. Oh. <laughs> and that was a lot of it while, it was while we were in lockdowns in Victoria as well. It was remarkable how much detail there was in every mm. chapter and every experience, and I'm sure we just got a taste of it. There was a lot I didn't put in it, obviously, and there were a few tales that I was going to tell, but I'm like, oh, mate, this book is long enough. (laughs) (laughs) It was just such an extraordinary, it was an extraordinary experience because it's a very sensual place as Mm. well, and literally all your senses are engaged. Mm. Partly that is, I think, because you're not somewhere where everything is familiar, but it's also what Italy does. It's a land of lovers and it's a land of beauty and it's considered to be a noble pursuit, beauty, rather than what to us is seen as often a shallow pursuit or a more selfish pursuit. The love of beauty is seen as for the greater good and it is deeply enriching because of that. And Peter would, and I would often say, oh, my God. I mean, the Italians who migrated to Australia were obviously driven to do so because conditions were so deplorable for them in Italy at the time, literally starvation. But, oh, my gosh, they must have just yearned for that country. I mean, we weren't offering much in return (laughs) with a sunburned country. Well, no, that's right. (laughs) You could get called a wog and people could mock you for eating spaghetti. (laughs) But every time we drink a coffee, we owe that. And the fact that we have one of the greatest coffee cultures in the world and one of the greatest food cultures in the world, Mm. we owe to the Italians. And one of the things that I loved about the way you described the people and your experience was how much they loved children. I remember my parents having a similar experience when we were little and they took us to Italy and how they still remark on how every stranger would stop you in the street and comment on the beautiful child. And It was really funny because when we were first thinking about moving, we were talking at our primary school, which is around the corner from our house, a state primary school, and one of the other parents there was a winemaker and she obviously spends a lot of time in France and she said to, to us at the time, which had never even occurred to us, I mean, I hadn't re- we hadn't really been to France either. She said to me, I have a theory that people are either French people 
or they're Italian people. And she said, you and Peter are Italian people. And I said, oh, why do you say that? And she said, oh, because the, she said, I love the French and I spent a lot of time there, but they're very stiff and they're very stiff around children. And I never forgot that she said that. And so often when we were there, not everybody, obviously, because, you know, there's always individual differences, but overall, the way the French treat the children I'm very glad we chose Italy <laughs> because the French had this expectation of their children that they will be little adults, mm. whereas the Italians absolutely revel in the fact that children are magical little people and don't want them to grow up before mm. their time. So it's a very different cultural take on things it's funny as a parent I wish I could be more Italian but geez sometimes I feel French (laughs) well you know there's a lot to be said for both like when you go to France and you see these families sitting there with their straight-backed children Mm. immaculate eating an an omelette mama (laughs) you're just like who are these people yeah you know and 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 obviously French style and love of food and I mean that's generational as well if you want warmth and you want vigor then Italy is the place for Mm. children for me if I was a child I'd much rather be in Italy than in France quite frankly I'd be happy with either (laughs) (laughs) what's a little brat would be complaining about that but it's a very interesting thing and in fact Mm. the whole notion of cultural differences in Europe is just fascinating to me coming from Australia where people are so scared to talk about race to talk about what it means or what different cultures mean whereas because my parents are migrants migrants always talk about that stuff it's really only white Australians who have made a generous and beautiful life for people of many other cultures who are the hardest on themselves about it Mm, that's a good point, actually. Mm. You know, my family's European background, my partner's Dutch. And yeah, you're mm. right. There's often mm. comments on the differences. And, yeah. You know, oh, my God. The way yeah. migrants talk. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. <laughs> In Europe, of course, because they live cheek by jowl and have for, you know, thousands of years, yeah. you try explaining to a Frenchman that there's no difference between him and a German and good luck with that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know? Or when my Dutch partner gets mistaken for a German, you know, yeah. like, no, no. Have you ever gone to the soccer with him and had him watch the play no. the Germans and had him yell out, give us our bikes back? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's that's a classic. <laughs> Haven't gone there. I tend to abandon him when he stays up for those all-night World Cup things, whatever they oh, are. Oh, right. I got into it because soccer is one of the few games that is simple enough that I can understand it. <laughs> yeah. And because we had been in Italy for a couple of World Cups, mm. it was just so gorgeous to watch and we'd always end up funny little places in cafes by the side of the road with just in a tiny little village with the whole village in there and people screaming and Mm. the intensity and a couple of drunk women and it was just (laughs) extraordinary the Mm. breadth of the cultural experiences that you've all had I mean what an incredible gift for your children you would think so wouldn't you Yana (laughs) do the children think that In my experience, you appreciate very little of your childhood until you're well past it. And even though our younger children, the two younger boys, and and our daughter too, actually, she really loved Italy. 
I don't think they will appreciate at all what it means until one day I you know they'll be somewhere and they'll speak Italian and their friends will go do you speak Italian and they'll go yeah we lived in Italy when we were little I don't know it'll be like that it'll be almost like something to them that's in their DNA along with the mRNA vaccine (laughs) and and it will just come out and then they'll realize I think what a blessing it is but they still have contact the older ones but in particular with their friends in Italy the two elder teenagers Lewis our eldest is planning to go back next year for summer holidays so fantastic I hear Mm. the summer holidays are very long I had no idea oh my goodness and and you know we had so we had 14 weeks or 12 weeks we were at an international school so we were on an English curriculum Mm -hmm. at the Italian schools they're even longer they're 14 14 weeks holiday and all of this is predicated as a lot of Italy is on very old-fashioned notions of what happens at home and of course what happens now is most women have to work so what do you do with children for 14 weeks on holidays not only are you stuck with kids at home but if you have to go to work then you can't be stuck with the kids at all so from one end of that country to the other you see grandparents with their children. And because they have such a low birth rate there and that most people only have one child now, there's like often four sets of grandparents with one child. So there's been a massive shift in in what we've imagined about Italy over the years. Like you always imagine these big rambling, you know, wild families and they don't have that anymore. Being an only child in lockdown, I think, must have just been absolutely horrendous. Yeah, yeah. Friends of ours over there whose kids are only children was really, really, really difficult and lonely for them. Really tough. Who's it worse for, the parents or the kid? <laughs> a fine line, Kate. It's a fine line. Next on the Curious Life podcast, Kate tells what kind of clarity and therefore changes in the people around her she has made from spending that time in Italy. So how do you think the trip has changed you? I think I'm always conscious of the fact now that if I want to be free, I'm the only person that can make me free you spend a lot of life through necessity doing things that are you know and I'm not negating the value of service to others or whatever but it's very easy to allow yourself to turn yourself over to other people's desires and other people's wishes and be of service to other people without actually doing a reckoning of what that's worth to you and I mean, it, that, it's not always an equal ledger, obviously, but there does come a point in your life in which you're like, uh, okay, I'm doing this for these people. What are they doing for me? And I, so I've been quite pragmatic about that. And on our, in our return to Australia, I mean, it's, it's sort of been a bit strange anyway, because we haven't ended up getting to see people because we've been locked down the whole time. But there's certain relationships that I view differently and and I value myself more highly within the context of my life. And it means that when you are going into service that you do that wholeheartedly because it's something that you are 
totally happy about and prepared to and willing to make those sacrifices rather than just having them expected of you. I love that. There are certain times in your life where you do take stock of things and even, you know, I'll be 40 around the time the baby's coming. Yeah, and right. I think about the way that I look at my friendships and the way that I value my time and it's so vastly different every decade, you know. Yeah. Doing something like this trip where you're just taking the most important people in your life somewhere else yes. and just being together. And yes. that is your world. It gives you such a different perspective. Perspective is everything. And it's while while we're away, I was just struck by this analogy that summed it up better than anything else for me, really, which was I was reminded of when astronauts go to space and they see the pale blue dot. And apparently they have this, you know, this reckoning with themselves and what we are in space and you know, how insignificant we are and yet that is everything to us. And my life in Australia, because of that same perspective of being so far away and because of time differences as well. So we, I couldn't cycle with anyone in Australia because you were asleep when I was awake and vice versa. I had a lot more distance than just physical distance. And I viewed my life like that blue dot. It was really interesting. You could just see everything in very clear relief. You could see the role that you play in things. You could see how people take advantage of you or you could see the people that you just genuinely made your heart swell with love and happiness. It was really interesting. You can see when people have got a racket that you've been made a part of. And then it's up to you whether or not you want to extract yourself from it. Sometimes if they're family members, you're like, oh, oh just go along with it. Yeah. And at other times you're like, mm, actually, yeah, no, nah, I'm kind of done with that. How refreshing for you to be freed from some of those oh, obligations. It was the greatest. <laughs> <laughs> it was the greatest. Yeah. And even on a, on a micro version now like every time we come out of lockdown I say to my husband let's just remember how peaceful lockdown is and not get overrun by the expectation that we have to do everything now because we come out of lockdown because our life in Italy was so rich and peaceful and also busy but not you know not that insane level of busyness that so many parents have in Australia where literally you're just gasping for air. You don't enjoy anything because you're so tired. It's tedious. It's stupid. It's not a life. No. What are you trying to check things off for? Who for? Really, does it matter if your kid doesn't know how to play the fucking flute? (laughs) And if they want to play the flute, they can get their own way there. We're driving around in big cars and we're and and we're buying our eighth property and blah. And I'm just like, wow, what, what for? And then by contrast, and I'm not painting, you know, like a rose-tinted version of Italy, but in the whole time we were there, the only people we met who talked about a renovation was us wow. waiting for our apartment to be renovated. They're just not motivated by things that we seem to be motivated by. The bigger, better deal culture. Maybe, you know, and it's hard to buy a house in Australia, but it's also hard to buy a house in Italy. 
But Italians have got a much worse off economy than we do, and yet they complain a lot less. It's interesting, isn't it? You talked about the difference in even the way that they spend their time. You can't get a meal, you know, between Mm -hmm. certain hours of the day Mm -hmm. and how much they value their own Mm self-care, which is absolutely, I mean, we live in a martyr society where, you know, we're sort of always talking about how busy we are and one-upping each other's busyness and tiredness and burning out and there's a lot we could be learning from that culture. hundred percent. Really their ability to be in the moment is something that is a mantra here. But, you know, that's like check that off on a to-do list. I was in the moment with my three-year-old in between dropping him off to childcare today. You know, <laughs> that's like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we all know at some point that we're robbing ourselves. And I think as well why my book meant such a lot to such a a lot of particularly women Mm. is that we know that we're not nourished by this life that we're living and we know that though we have barely anything left to give, it doesn't seem to be enough. And I know that a lot of us feel that we don't feel like our partners are really with us on the journey or that we don't believe our dreams will ever come true. And all of that is serves to make us more frightened and to make all of the above happen more and to make the likelihood that your dreams will come true less. Yeah. And as we've learned from this pandemic, fear is the greatest controller of people. And so for me, it was like, well, I'm not going to be scared to give up my work. And I'm not going to be scared to leave my friends and I'm not going to be scared for my children to leave their friends. Mm -hmm. Like what do we think of the world? What you you get one finite set of circumstances and that's it? Seriously. Uh, But I understand as well there's more reasons to not do it than there are to do it. But for me the only reasons were to do it. And the benefits of that continuing to be felt in my life and like you say the kids may not resonate with that now but god it is going to be magnificent for them to look back on sure to life you know no that's right that's right oh well we'll never do that again (laughs) you know it's it's not like that at all and hopefully as the world returns to normal Mm -hmm. and citizens assert themselves within the world and assert their rights within the world and claim back what is ours and we're able to travel again, we'll be able to go back and see our friends and see new places as well as places we missed. Kate Langbrook might not have all the answers, but she is a very wise person. Next, she'll give you her take on what the price of love really is and what you might lose if you weren't prepared to pay for it. Be set for a few aha moments too. sounds like something a fire has been lit within you it is um an awakening it is an awakening and it's at once an awakening and a dream so (laughs) (laughs) that's like a perfect combination for me sounds like parenthood really (laughs) well it is it's it's not dissimilar there's so much more I would love to delve into but I know we're short on time yes 
I just wanted to ask you one thing. I don't want you to have to go into the whole story again because, you know, you've shared so much of the journey with Lewis and that whole horrific traumatic time and you you write so beautifully about it in the book. I was in tears reading mm. some of that and mm. I'm sure anybody who picks up the book is going to have those same feelings. But the one thing that really stood out for me was your belief that you had to be strong for your little man. How could he possibly be strong if you weren't? How do you actually do that? Uh, You know, it's interesting talking about that because, of course, we had a fortunate outcome with Lewis and it didn't seem like that was always going to be the case, but it ended up being the case. But I'm always very conscious of when I talk about it, the fact that I'm talking to people who haven't had fortunate outcomes, who have done what I did and what our family did, but with more bravery and without any reward. But one of the things about, I guess, having children is that you can't ever make the world go back to how it was before you had children. Even if those children are taken from you, mm-hmm. you know what it was to have those children. And with great love comes great responsibility. And as much as you would in those circumstances, like a UFO to come and suck you up, and no matter what it did, you just take you away from having to witness things that you should never have to see. There's a stronger force that keeps you here and keeps you going one step in front of the other, even when you think you can't. And that is the power of love. And I don't understand how it works. I don't understand how it works. I only know it's the strongest force I know. And I, at some stage, was brought to my knees by it and had to surrender to it, and that was the only thing I had that would keep me going. Oh, Kate. Mm. And I know you know about grief. I do. Mm. But that it has to be grief only exists if love exists. So very and, true. Yeah. And it's the it's the price you pay. And if you live long enough, you're gonna pay the price for loving someone. And then I guess the the I guess the one in one of those sort of universal kind of deal making things that don't work, would you give up everything you've ever had? with that person to save yourself that grief yeah I mean Mm, I know the grief the grief is so and I mean you know I've lost my mum and I've worked Mm. in grief the very thought of losing a child, no matter how much mm. they shit me, no matter how much I'm over them, <laughs> you know, no matter how much I'm yes. texting my yes. partner, come and get your children, I'm yes. over it. You know? <laughs> the whisper of it yes. and of a thought will just be enough yeah. to ruin you. Yeah. So 
There are those walking amongst us who have endured it and continue to, to endure it. Yeah. It's, you know, yeah. what life, life is its own reward and it must somehow make it possible to keep living when you think you can't. Just that one little thought that you just have to get through today. Yes. Sometimes you just have to get through the hour. Yes. And the hour can feel like a year. <sighs> yeah. And then some. And then you have to do things that celebrate life, like go live in Italy. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> or whatever version of it is, you yeah. know. It might be, like you said, the backyard in the sun with a book for an hour. Yeah. Those little escapes. Yeah. Yeah. But, geez, you know, you have made me want to pack my bags and get on out of here. That is for sure. And Well, I can't recommend it heartily enough. Very much an advocate for it. And as I say to people, you don't have to do it the way we did with all the paperwork and blah, blah, and blah, blah. But if you can take a three months, steal three months Mm. and do it, it's just so life-affirming. I think we all need a little bit of that. We're all a bit bruised and we're a little bit bruised and bit you like we've been dragged through some bushes. <laughs> yeah, just <as> we do. <laughs> I certainly feel like that. Thank you so much, Kate. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you and I can't wait for everyone to read your beautiful book. It's magnificent. Cannot recommend it highly enough. Thanks, Yana. Ciao, Bella. <laughs> Ciao. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We would love it if you left us a rating for this episode and catch up with Yana for more inspiration and info on how to get to the stories that tap into your passion on Instagram and Facebook at The Curious Life Podcast. And if you're looking for a fabulous podcast editor or producer, use ours. Julie Reynolds will turn your audio lemons into audio lemonade. Check out audiolemonade.com.au.